Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. First podcast recording of 2024, Sherry. And we're we're hitting the ground running. Sounds little. I'm a little out of practice. My yeah, my uh, throat cracked there. You're out of practice talking. <laughs> you find that hard to believe? I do. How about this title though? The Dick Olympics. Size isn't everything, but you are a big one. I bet our listeners are dying to know what that means. Oh, we'll get into it in just a minute. But we got some stuff to take care of first. We got some business. First of all, welcome Nikki and Anne Marie. So good to see you. Hello. All right. They just looked back at us on Zoom. Yes. Um, they're smiling, though, so that's good. We'll get to you guys in a minute, too. We are we are not messing around with the 2024 Untoxicated podcast schedule. But with that title coming up. We've got these lovely, dear, sweet friends of ours, Nikki and Anne-Marie, today. This big-time title uh, of our podcast. You know, just we're, mm-hmm. we're not holding back anymore. And then coming up, we want to make our listeners aware, in a, by the end of January, we are going to release a podcast with Amber Hollingsworth called The Rumble with Amber or something like that. Amber and I, we're going to rumble. There are... <laughs> verbal rumble. Verbal rumble. Yes, from, <laughs> from 2,000 miles apart. Um, Amber Hollingsworth from the Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel. She is a therapist and... Like, like licensed, like official person, not like us, not like just a couple of yahoos talking about stuff. And she knows her stuff. And there, we've had her on the podcast a couple of times. We've gone on her YouTube channel a couple of times and we just love her. And there are so many ways in which we agree and, and just support her philosophies. But there are a couple of areas where I've always thought she and I don't quite see eye to eye. So instead of just asking her to explain that, you're going to just go in it with like a rumble. Yep. I come in guns blazing. We're going we're gonna to fight it out. And you are going to moderate. What? How exciting. Ugh. You're going to ask us questions, and then we're going to argue about the answers. It's going to be great. Argue. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I know how much you love conflict. Yeah. Well, why else would you marry an alcoholic? Must have been what you were looking for. Thanks. I'm kind of kind of fired up considering how uncaffeinated I am. We got a new... Nikki and Anne-Marie, we got a new coffee maker for Christmas because our old one died. And the old one was like like a hundred years it was, old. It was 12 years old. Mr. Well, coffee. I didn't crazy. realize it's it, great. It wasn't really making hot coffee anymore. And so now I pour my <laughs> coffee in the morning and I gotta wait about 90 minutes before I can drink it. And so you're like probably like, well, why don't you not use that travel mug? Good idea. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet. Do they make it extra un- strong now too? Um, actually, well, I have made it a request for extra strong since I like cream in my coffee. I'm like, when you make weak coffee and I cream it, it's a little lacking. So I, so I did ask. That's her. a great question because I don't know what I'm doing because this one has the cone filters <laughs> instead of the flat ones. And so like that is way too much change for me. It's hot and cone filters. No way. No way. Uh, but the other one's broken. It's already in the dump. So mm-hmm. No going back. Anyway, totally uncaffeinated. So sorry if I'm a little slow today, my friends. Uh, let's see. What else do we need to talk about before we get into the the meat? Oh, yes. Reminder, our book 
uh, Sober Evolution is on sale. Kindle version on Amazon and full transparency, as we've been saying for the last couple of podcast episodes, we are just trying to get our numbers up so that when we go to publish our next book, we have more books sold than we already do. It's sold great. It's great. Like we're no complaints. We're really pleased with how it's gone, but the book's three and a half years old. And so the sell rate is uh, diminishing. So 99 cents, Sober Evolution, Kindle version. Um, Nikki, one of our guests here, was kind enough to offer to buy a bunch of copies for some of the people in our group. Um, so Nikki, we really appreciate your support. Um, yeah, I know you've read it and now uh, you're helping other people read it. Pretty awesome. And frankly, for Sherry and I's perspective, we don't give a rip if you read it or not. We just want you to drop 99 cents for us. That would be really helpful. You know, podcast is free. Um, we don't do that. Uh, what's it called? Ads. Uh, no, well, ads. Yeah. Well, the only people that we get that want to advertise are um, like CBD people, which I don't understand, but that's, I know CBD is different than marijuana, but like they're yeah, kind of related and we're all about don't do substances. So that just feels icky to me. Um, so we've steered away from those ads, but no, the uh, what's the, Thing where you ask people to give you money because you are an artist Pledge fund or something. No. Anyway, we don't do that. So drop 99 cents on us. Will you please Amazon sober evolution? That would be great. Uh, also, we are really excited about the new batch of listener questions we've been receiving. Thank you for all of those of you who have sent them in. We'll try to get to as many of them as possible. Uh, a lot of them are very similar though. So we've got a little bit of overlap. We'd love to hear if you have a listener question that you don't think we've addressed before. So if you have a question you'd like, again, non-therapists, non-psychologists, just Sherry and I to uh, take a shot at, then send that to matt at soberandunashamed.com. Thanks. We'd love to get your question on. Now, here is our listener question from today. How do I, the spouse of an alcoholic, Walk the line between being loving and supportive and asserting my own needs. A little bit of context that this person supplied for us. She, they've been married for years. They have young kids and her husband has been sober for one month and he's doing AA. And further in the email below the question, she, she put this, this, this sentence that I thought really needed to be included she said, I don't have a roadmap for supporting him and honoring what I've been through at the same time. And I was like, boom, that is such a big part of what early sobriety looks like for the loved ones, for the spouses. How do I do this support thing, whatever the hell that is? And at the same time, show respect for the fact that I have been traumatized by this experience of living with this alcoholic. So let's take a stab at this. Uh, Sherry, what are your thoughts? Um, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind was a question kind of going back to the person who asked the question or anybody who might have this is how assertive were you in the beginning of your relationship? Is that something that you had had and then felt like was lost or you never had it because there was always some sort of variable that made you feel uncomfortable having that? Because I, I feel like when you and I first met, I was pretty assertive. I, you called me like spunky or sparky or mean. I don't know. I something. Didn't call spunky. But, well, something. That is the like okay. son's name on National Lampoon's Vacation. Yeah, I don't know. Spunky. 
Sparky. Okay, yeah, but his Sparky. nickname was Sparky. Or no, That's the dad's dad. name nickname was Sparky. You have to go back. Well, I didn't call you Chevy Chase. Okay, That's okay. for sure. Well, whatever. But like you would always, you know. Spunky. Spunky. Yeah. You were fiery. Fiery and, and kind of mean. But when I turned it back on you, you didn't like it. Not at all. But you liked it when it was other people. That's right. You liked it when it was, you know, you weren't the victim of it. But... So that was a big thing that was, I think, a disconnect in our relationship was then I kind of lost my voice because then it just, you know, was hard to express myself without just it being an argument between you and I. And especially when I was drinking, which you were drinking. Yeah. And then I think in sobriety, in this last permanent sobriety you had, it took a little bit of time, but I was also detached and I was done and I was tired of holding back um in some ways so like I feel like when you asked me questions I would kind of just give you an answer because I was like well I don't know what else I have to lose you know um that's a really good point I've never thought about that trajectory that way but you were spunky fiery independent confident all of that stuff where whatever was happening underneath that's what you portrayed yeah. that's what came across and I love that and then alcoholism beat that out of you because you had to walk on eggshells and you never knew what my reaction was going to be. And if you were assertive, you know, you might get fire coming back at you. Mm -hmm. And so you lost that. And your natural kind of retrieval of detachment was just coming back to who you were. Being that person that said, I don't give a shit. I don't care what you just read. I don't care what your thoughts are. I don't care what your new plan is. I don't care. Don't talk to me about it. Yeah. I guess I just had to try to find a way to like, just to kind of help myself in recovery was to be supportive of myself. Not so much. You take care of the kids, be supportive of them again, not thinking about your every need. And I had tried that because you had tried sobriety for 10 years. Yeah. Like it was very cyclical, even just your behaviors, even when you were in a state of drinking, um, and then I thought, if you're asking a question, I'm going to give you an answer now because yeah. I can't beat myself down anymore. So I just wondered how much of that was there before. Um, so I think that if it was there before, it might just be a, like, it doesn't matter what you're going to do. You're going to upset them. So you might as well make yourself happy a little bit and try to get some of that back and honor it, but honoring them, what they've been through. It's like, you don't want to have a tit for tat sort of complaint fest. Well, you did this. Well, this is how I felt. But, you know, trying to verbalize that. And that's maybe where a good support group would come in at the beginning of that. And then once the alcoholic is longer into sobriety, then you can start working and repairing the relationship and talking about those resentments and their perspective, you know, sharing your perspective of how alcohol affected you in the day-to-day -day life or big instances or. Um, yeah. Well, we're blessed to have a couple of buddies on here. So let's get their perspective again. I don't have a roadmap for supporting him and honoring what I've been through. Anne-Marie, what do you think? Have you had those feelings? I think, honestly, that Echoes was my lifeline and a big part of me because I'm a people pleaser. Um, until I found Echoes, I feel like I didn't, and I don't want this to turn into, you know, um, an advertisement for the support group, but... Um, up until I found all of you guys, I, a big part of me didn't feel like I even had a voice. Um, you know, because anything that my ex said was 
like the rule of the house, right? So um, he was the dominant one in the relationship the entire time. Um, I yesed him to death and pretty much went along with whatever he said. And uh, the couple of times that he did try to get sober, a lot of it really was me just saying, you know, good for you and I'm proud of you. And um, there was no acknowledgement of anything that I had been through. Um, so we never really reached that point as a couple. So the only acknowledgement I've really had and uh, reminders that I wasn't actually losing my mind was all of the friends I've made here and you guys. Um, so I understand how that can be a hard balance because the person that's trying to get sober and maintain sobriety, um, can only focus on that. So it, it's, it's hard to, to find that balance from my experience. Forget about him for a minute. Forget about supporting him. How important has it been, you know, even though it's taken time and it's taken the perspective of others, which is totally normal. How important has it been for you to honor what you've been through and recognize that you've been through serious trauma and this is no laughing matter. And it's not just something for you to, you know, suck it up and live with. It is probably what saved me um, because I spent so much time believing what I was being told, which was that I was wrong, that I was overreacting and that I was crazy. So realizing that none of those things were true and that the disease was destroying us both um, is really what allowed me to start to see things clearly that I needed to focus on me for a change in my needs. And uh, he was going to do what he needed to do with or without me because this problem existed before I showed up and um, I'm sure it's going to exist long after I'm gone. So taking care of what I needed and wanted was the only thing I had control over. And it took me a long time to realize that. Well, I'm glad you not only realize it, but now you're an ambassador for that message. That's great, Emery. Nikki, I wonder if you have a bit of a similar experience to what we just talked about with Sherry in that you were this person and then you got kind of crushed down to something different and then you've bounced back. Is that, does that resonate at all for you? So I'm like Anne-Marie and Echo kind of guided me um, in the very beginning, but what it taught me was that I was a very reactive person and I found my survival and like healing in silence um, because I would constantly be up his butt trying to get him to do xyz <clears throat> and recover and i had to realize that like i'm kind of giving him what he needs while i'm getting what i need and i need to be quiet because i need to focus on myself and not really worry about what he's doing and that's kind of what he wanted all along but i wasn't listening because i wanted to control what i couldn't control um so for me, it, you know, there is no roadmap and I don't think you'll ever find one. Um, it's got to be what you feel in your gut, in your heart. Um, and mine was telling me to shut up. I mean, because I've already said enough and I knew that my words were meaningless until we were both at a point to come together 
and he can actually hear what I have to say and vice versa. I think that's great that you talk about how you needed to go do your thing. I mean, I, I think we probably have a lot of listeners who maybe through hearing us jabber on and on about it, kind of hopefully come to that realization that you as the spouse, as the loved one, you deserve your own recovery too. I know that was really frustrating for you, Sherry, when you were like, what do you mean I have to do the work? I wasn't the drinker. It wasn't my fault. Uh, it doesn't have to be your fault to be your responsibility for recovery and repair. And so Nikki, when you talk about how you kind of had to go to your corner and do your stuff and your husband had to do his thing, and then you come back together, this person that that sent us this listener question, she mentioned that he has a month of sobriety. So they're not close. They're not, they're not within months of really working on relationship stuff. Um, he, he is going to need to focus on his sobriety and she can start working on her own recovery as well. Um, before they come back together. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that in. Um, it's that focusing on, you know, you're going to your own corners and working on it is, it's so important. And I think the the line that she put in the listener question about honoring what she's been through, that is so important and undervalued by people until they're really, they're rolling up their sleeves and getting into doing the work. I'm finding that I'm getting really upset um, by an aspect of this. And I don't, I don't know if I've just been, if I've just heard too many stories or if I'm just getting cranky because I can't get caffeine in the morning because my coffee maker's too hot. I don't know what it is. But this, you know, I, I keep comparing it to if you were assaulted in a dark alley, you're not responsible to re, to support the, um, you know, the, the coming back to civilization of the perpetrator. It's not your job to rehabilitate this person. Well, if you've lived in an alcoholic relationship, you have been traumatized. You have been verbally and emotionally, and maybe not in every case, but in the vast majority of cases, you've been verbally and emotionally assaulted. And um, the idea that it is in any way your responsibility to support this person through recovery, and I'm the one who was the drinker, right? So I went through this. And when I look back and I think of the things I asked from Sherry in the way of support, yeah, I was needy and I was insecure. And I did exactly what most of us do and expect a lot from Sherry and kind of downplay what I had done to her. But, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would have gone to my separate corner and found my own support elsewhere outside of, you know, relying on this person that I had assaulted for so long. And, um, I think it would have sped up our recovery and it, it, it's certainly the fair and right thing to do. So if, you know, to this listener and anyone else out there that's walking this line, and I think it's a, a very common thing and a fair question to ask, how do I support this person. Obviously, if you're assaulted in a dark alley, you're probably not married to the person who assaults you. So there is a little bit of a difference in that you've committed your life. Maybe you have kids, you do love this person, but the idea that it's your job to help them get and stay sober and work through recovery. I think that's, I, I think that's missing the point. And I also have a feeling this is one of the things Amber and I are going to rumble about what level of support yeah. the, uh, yeah. the loved one <laughs> is responsible for. I feel like you don't owe them anything, but you owe yourself another version of yourself. Yeah. Um, because I didn't honor his sobriety for probably well over a year. Um, because I was 
skeptical and I still didn't know if this was going to last. And I didn't, was I proud of him for getting sober? Yeah, but he was still so cocky and like that he was just sober that I couldn't even give him the satisfaction. <laughs> um, like I owed him a round of applause or something like that. Like I couldn't give that to him because I just, I was still angry. And I feel like you have to go through your emotions to honor yourself before you can even honor them. Yeah, absolutely. Could not agree more. Well, thank you both for chiming in before we even got a chance to introduce you. Listener, I hope that that, that helps. Thank you for submitting that question. Nikki and Amory are dear, sweet friends of ours, Sherry. Um, we have known them both for years, love them both. Uh, and are really, really comfortable and excited having them on the podcast. Um, Nikki, how long has Josh been sober? Josh has been on the podcast a few times, uh, once, twice, yes. twice. Nikki, how many times have you been on? He's been on three oh, times. I don't know. I Josh no, been I on three times? Yeah, the couples retreat. Then See how well I prepare for these episodes? <laughs> and they're it's out. been a bunch, whatever. <laughs> um, I said I've lost out. And you've been on a bunch of times, Nikki, which we really yeah, appreciate. That. That's okay. Um, yeah. I remember the first time you uh, you were on, and it was with Josh, right? We said, "Hey, let's do something a little different and have a couples thing." So that was that was really great. Amory, uh, you have been on before. We're so glad to have you back. Um, you so you are recently divorced, yes. so you bring you bring a. Uh, a, a different perspective to this and, and a really, really important perspective to this. I know we talked leading up to this conversation and you wanted to make sure that your perspective was what we were looking for. And I just, I tried to assure you by text, but I want to doubly assure you here now. <laughs> um, we want to paint the picture from all perspectives and you have a very, very valuable one. You've also got some great stories. So we are excited to have you both on the podcast. Thank you for being here. So today we're talking about the Dick Olympics. Size isn't everything, but you are a big one. Huh. Like that little innuendo. Yeah. That's that's what we call clickbait, I think, in the biz, right? <laughs> um, but we're not going to talk about size in that way. Uh, what are the qualifications for the Dick Olympics? You might be w wondering, well, you have to be in early sobriety because we all know that an active addiction, I mean, the possibilities for dickness are just unlimited. I mean, you can be an asshole anytime, anywhere, all the time, everywhere. So we don't want to allow into the Dick Olympics, people who are still actively in addiction it's, they just have too much of an advantage. It's like they're on steroids, right? So why would we let people on steroids into the Dick Olympics? So qualifications for the Dick Olympics, you have to be in early sobriety. Um, and I want to mention that I took the gold in the Dick Olympics in 2017 in, in all three of these categories. I took the gold in the mood swing dash, in the know-it-all-a-thon, and in freestyle, woe is me. Uh, gold medalists three times. Yeah. You remember that, Sherry? I do. You were the ones wrapping those medals around my neck. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hopefully you would, you would be enough of the rope to hang yourself and you could 
realize, oh, well, no, I can't continue. Well, we there we go. Spunky coming out, coming out strong. Yes. We should I think, clap. I think applause is an order. You didn't expect that, I did you? not. Yeah. So I'm a little cocky. I mean, there might be some other contenders out there that you aren't aware of, but. No, no, I was, it was me. It was all me. There are other categories that other people won, but uh, the freestyle, what was me? That was especially my, that was my specialty. You Let that. me tell you how hard sobriety is, Sherry. I mean, you couldn't possibly understand. You trained for that for a long time, I did. too. I had all those dry periods and then relapses. Yeah, so You're right. I forgot how. Oh. Yeah. It was like it was like going to the Olympic Training you know, Center in Colorado Springs. It, 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 yeah, I was going to say. And it's like going to the Colorado Springs Winter Olympics training year. We lived in Colorado. Beer is your thing. When we moved here, somebody said, oh, those microbreweries, you know, you know it's going to be great. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so you came to a spot where it was just the streets are flooded with beer. Yeah. And you had to fight your way through sobriety. That's right. Do you know why we are in our prime for the Dick Olympics when we're in early sobriety? Just like just yes. like athletes in different different Olympic categories. Have, you know, there's a kind of an age range when you're in your prime. Right. There's not a lot of 70 year old Olympians. The reason we're in our prime in early sobriety is because our neurochemistry, our pain and pleasure chemical balance is just perfectly fucked up and out of balance. So that so that, that we can we yeah, that's right. So that we can deliver the kind of irrational thought and um and just kind of jaded comments. We we are really but the, you know there is a lot of truth to that. The the dopamine, the serotonin, it is not being delivered on normal, just joyful experiences in everyday life. It is reserved for when we consume alcohol. And when we stop consuming alcohol, then there's no dopamine coming our way at all. And that takes about a year to, to really transition out of. And so that first year of early sobriety, that is when you were in your athletic prime for the Dick Olympics. Um, Nikki, do you remember your husband's first year? Was he, did he qualify for the Dick Olympics in his first year of sobriety? <clears throat> uh absolutely <laughs> you got anything more on that uh, so he's four years sober now so so it's hard to remember it was too long ago it's not that it's hard to remember they just all jumbled together i feel like at this point um but Early, early on, I would say he's sober, but he was definitely not on any path of recovery. Um, the, the, the amount of, actually, we just had a conversation about this, but the amount of things that he did to protect his life in early sobriety, because it was so <clears throat> natural to kind of keep going, even though like he was lying when he was drinking, but then it kind of just got out of habit to keep going in early sobriety. And he would do things like intentionally, like for instance, if I was talking and he'd be like, oh, I told you that. And I'm like, you're telling me things that aren't leaving your mouth. Like, and he'd be like, I, I, I said it. And he would basically make me feel like I'm crazy and that I'm not hearing him or listening to him or paying attention to him that was a big thing I feel like in the very beginning because I'm over here was... like go ahead 
Well, when you talked about it with him, was he doing that? Was that like, you know, I'm in pain, so I want you to be in pain, so I'm going to make you feel crazy? Or did he really think he would say those things and was just kind of so jumbled up that he didn't realize he was not? I think it's a bit of both. And I think he honestly just couldn't keep track of his life. <laughs> mm. um, so it was his like immediate reaction to tell me that he said something because then it's not his fault. Um, like he had to blame shift. He had to put it on somebody else because he couldn't handle any more of that weight in early sobriety. Like I already blamed him enough for things. Oh, that makes a ton of sense. It's like the shame beater is, uh, it's spiked out and it can't take any more because if there's one thing I know about Josh, he is all about accountability and ownership and, you know, he takes a great deal of pride in, in being honest. And so this, now. you know, that must've been quite a, yeah, so that's where I'm going. That must've been quite a transition to go from, you know, the lies that you have to, to get into, to perpetuate the addiction and then transitioning out. It's, it's not just about stopping putting the bottle to your lips. Um, there's a lot more work that is required, isn't there? Oh, a ton. Um, and that was kind of part of my so-called ultimatum to him when he, when I told him that he needed sobriety is I'm like, you also need therapy. You also need support and not just like that was part of his biggest struggle in the beginning is actually opening up when he went to AA. Anyone can go to AA, but if you don't open your mouth and actually talk and share and try to move forward in your life, then you're just going to be the 80-something-year-old person at AA who repeats the same thing. Like, you're not getting anything anymore. You're just being the same person. You're not in recovery. You're just sober. What was it like for you when he was making you feel like you were crazy, but, but you knew he was sober? Now, he hid his drinking, so... There's a little bit of that. Like you didn't, you didn't exactly know what was going on when he was drinking, but when he got sober, did you take a big sigh of relief and think, okay, now we're good. And then he's still making you feel crazy to some degree. Did that shock you? Oh, for sure. Because I thought that it was going to fix everything. At that point, I was still in victim mode as well. And I was unaware that I had the work to do. Um, and I, you know, I didn't join Echoes until about a year of his sobriety in. So I was kind of just flopping around because I was angry that he, I could see he was sort of getting better and I was still crying in the corner and didn't know why he was getting better, but we weren't getting better. Um, until I realized when I joined Echoes that like, that's just not <laughs> how it works. Um, it's just kind of confusing because you think that, well, there's nothing to alter their state of mind. That's anymore. right. That's right. So why, <clears throat> why is it not getting better? But we also dealt with transferred addictions. So, um, that's part of why I think it wasn't getting better too. I was just going to ask you about that. Cause I'm sure that a lot of people in early sobriety turn to other things to get that dopamine hit. And so as the sober partner, we're sitting there thinking, oh, well, they are not drinking. 
um, alcohol, you know, or in front of me that I can see, but things aren't getting better. So there was a transfer of addiction. So then that has made that road to sobriety a little bumpy. Can you talk a little bit about those transferred addictions? So at that point, I was still checking everything and still overly um, smelling bottles, even tasting them when I shouldn't have, um, because you never know what wine would put in a empty bottle. But um, he eventually, I started noticing NyQuil bottles. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't have put anything to that until I started seeing them a little too frequently being like bought. Um, and I know he was struggling to sleep. And so I wanted to give him that, but then it just seemed like it was an unhealthy and there's other ways to sleep than using NyQuil with alcohol in it. There are alcohol free ones. There are z there are melatonin. There are a lot of other ways and methods he could have used um so yeah i mean he was using that he was drinking the kombuchas or whatever they're called um and then he kind of isolated for a long time in the basement and would dive into video games um so even though he was sober ish i'm using quotes because um, to me, it was a lot of emotional relapses as well. Um, but he was isolated. And I know video games doesn't seem like something you can transfer an addiction to. But that is like full force where all of his like endorphins and all that. Like it was just, that's all he did. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, That that's, I mean... I think it totally seems like something you can transfer an addiction to. In fact, everything you mentioned does the sleep aids, uh, activities like, like the video games. I mean, it's all about finding that next hit of dopamine and it's this dopamine depletion, the the hijacking that takes place through alcoholism. Uh, it's, it's fairly well known now, but I, I, it just shocks me when people say, yeah, I understand the brain chemistry piece, but, why am I not finding any joy in early sobriety? Well, you don't understand the brain chemistry piece if you're asking that. It's This is a serious thing. And so I loved when you said he's not putting these substances in his body anymore, but he's still, you know, the same behaviors are still there and that that was confusing for you in his early sobriety. I, it's totally understandable why that, that would be confusing, but I'm just so glad that now you understand that just because you stop doing something bad doesn't mean that your brain gets rewired immediately. And the fact that this takes a year is shocking to people, but it's, it's so common to see people that they're well into their second year of sobriety before just, you know, a pretty sunrise or their kid gets an A on a paper or they enjoy going to a basketball game that before those little things start to come back. It's, it's amazing. And your experiences really reflect that. One more thing I want to say about your husband, about Josh, it's, you talk about him isolating. It's so interesting to see how he has evolved. Uh, his AA group is very important to him. And he has spoken and spoken out, like you said. In fact, he's a leader in his AA group now. He has corrected me on multiple occasions when I've said something disparaging about AA. 
And uh, he is actually navigating his small AA group through a kind of tumultuous period right now, which we don't need to go into any of the details, but he is, he's gone from isolated and not sure what to do with himself to a, a complete leader in, in the recovery movement in his, his little corner of the world. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you say it like that, <laughs> it's, it's hard to still think that, you know, when, when I came on this podcast, I was literally texting you going, help. Like I'm, I'm I don't remember some of these things. I'm, I'm me, me and Anne-Marie, we were struggling of coming up with stories. And that's to me, I feel like it's because he has done so much work in such a short amount of time towards the end of his sobriety so far um, that, he's just a different person and I've gotten used to seeing this person that I almost have like blocked out so much of the stuff that has happened in the beginning um, as far as specifics because he doesn't act that way anymore um, and it's kind of nice and it's it's something that I'm really proud of him for um, he doesn't isolate he sits in our in our living room not in the basement um, interacts with our kids like he's doing the work that's great to hear because you might not remember the way back but i remember the way back well enough to remember when josh took the gold in sitting in your own house and you guys hate texting each other that's a that's a that's such a great a great competition there are a lot of competitors in that yeah in that field yeah because we we have like a rule at our house like and i remember like expressing this nikki if you're in the house go talk to somebody and you know even if it's like you know giving them the big the nasty eye you know like so you know i'm mad but uh yeah our son answered a text when he got home and went into his bedroom and he answered the text that i had texted him earlier in the day and uh I was like, what? You can't just pop your head out the door and say, sure, I'll do that, you know? And it made me think of you two because I knew this was coming up and I was like, oh, I always mentioned that. I know. It was so funny too because Sherry and I were so new at what we do and, and we would be like, I, I don't think that's okay. I don't know. Should we say something? I don't, I don't know. I don't think texting each other from one room to the other. That, like, you know, that just leaves this whole gap of like the actual communication and contact and connection that when you can, you know, I call them cyber bullies and keyboard bullies and stuff. And you can do that because you don't have to like acknowledge and see someone's face and pain. And then there is the lack of voice inflection and intent that I think is, is very, you know, can get misinterpreted, but we also were a generation where communicating via text was part of our earlier adulthood. I remember like converting to text and you were like, you'll never do this. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And it took me about five or six years before I really embraced it. The, the lack of voice inflection is a good point. Cause you can say to someone, you want a gold medal in the Dick Olympics, or you can say you, you want, a want a gold medal in the Dick Olympics. And those are two very different things, right? Uh, well, to yeah. be fair, like I felt that was my only way to have a voice that I can get everything that I had to say out 
without being interrupted, without mm-hmm. him walking away, without the conversation just being completely avoided. In the, and it still could have been avoided, but at least I know he saw it and he mm-hmm. read what I had to say. And it also, even though it created the tension in the house, it still, um, I didn't fight vocally in front of my child. And that mm-hmm. was like, our, I think our main thing is that we wanted to avoid that, even though I'm sure she still felt the tension of us not happy with one another and stuff like that. But there wasn't a lot of the fighting in front of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Like not being interrupted, not having the conversation spun off onto something else that would maybe be, you know, him competing for the gold of woe is me or whatever <laughs> Matt called it, the, you know. The uh, freestyle woe is me gold medal. Yeah, so because that derailment of conversations or the interruption um, yeah. is very, very understandable. Emory. I mean. Sorry, go ahead, Nikki. Sorry, I was just going to say he could totally derail a text. So don't think that that's not a thing either. He could totally do <laughs> oh, it in a text. So he's got the gold for derailing a text. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think we should all have to go back to where it's a flip phone and you have to hit like. You have to hit one three times to get to see (laughs) and then see how much angry texting we do. I think any, any couple should do, they should just have a flip phone just for their own communication. Mm. That'd be good. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Force us to talk to each other. I don't know. Maybe Emery, your husband never got fully sober on a long-term basis, but he did try several times in your relationship. He, he made attempts at sobriety. Did you find that he lacked joy from that neurotransmitter hijacking um and was that lack of joy one of the things that would send him back drinking so you didn't expect such a specific question did you you're like no i feel like i I have a a bit of a, a unique scenario where his first stint of sobriety was basically a challenge as the result of an ultimatum from me saying either you go get help or i'm leaving you um, he started to see this substance abuse counselor, which was a big step for him because when I first met him, he would scoff at the idea of therapy. Um, so he took my threat seriously and he went to talk to this person and then six months had gone by and he hadn't gone back. And I said, listen, one appointment's not going to cut it. Um, <laughs> either you go back or I'm still leaving. So I feel, I'm trying to remember now, it was quite some time ago. So he made another appointment. Eventually I joined and uh, we were going to these sessions together. And at was some he, point- So it's a substance abuse counselor, but hit, was he not drinking during this period or was it, you know- He like was. I'm, okay. He still was, yeah. So okay. at some point this counselor looked at him and said, you know, now he's known us you know, a few months at this point, he sees the big picture. This is what he does for a living. He understands what the real issue is. So he says to my ex, I'm going to challenge you with this. Give me 30 days of sobriety. If at the end of those 30 days, your marriage is still on the verge of divorce, I will 100% agree with you that Anne-Marie is batshit crazy and that she's the problem here. He said, but I have a feeling you're going to see that that's going to be the opposite. And my ex accepted the challenge and he was successful. He had 30 days of sobriety and I swear he did a 180 in that time. Uh, I saw such a huge difference in him. He was present 
he was calm. Um, it, it seemed to be almost an immediate thing, but it took me some time to realize that it seemed easy for him. One, once he puts his mind to something, you know, he's going to do it. But I feel that in his mind, even if it wasn't a conscious thought, he knew he only had to do this for 30 days. So it wasn't a big deal. I'm sure the whole time he was devising a plan as to how he was going to then control his drinking afterwards, because obviously he went back to it. There was, I don't remember there ever being a conversation where he said, yes, I can do this long-term, no big deal. I think he was just trying to prove a point that he was given this challenge and he could do it. So eventually he went back. People will ask me when I tell this story now, well, what happened? Did he just, you know, go back to the level of drinking he had before? And I honestly can't remember now. I assume that, you know, he started to introduce alcohol back into his life and that I challenged him on that. And he reassured me that it was fine and that he could keep it under control, which obviously, you know, wasn't the case. Um, and that's really when we would run into problems. Uh, there were so many times where he would convince me that cutting back was the answer. Uh, so in some respects to him, he was partially sober because he wasn't drinking as much as he used to. He wasn't cracking a beer at, um, you know, 515 at the end of his workday because he works from home. Um, so in his mind, as long as he was controlling it, that was that was enough for him. So while in the beginning he would say, I love you because you challenged me to be a better person, that didn't count when it came to me challenging him on his drinking. So even when he was trying to control it and I could see the difference because now I, I saw these 30 days where he was sober and he was a different person. What about the counselor? Was the counselor back involved at the end? I mean, the counselor obviously didn't say, Anne Marie, you're batshit crazy. Did the counselor say CCC? It was the alcohol. Like did that, did that point I mean, ever get driven home? I tried to bring that up to my ex several times as, you know, things were falling apart. I said, are you denying that those 30 days ever happened? Are you denying that you felt better, that you felt happier? I said, because why wouldn't you want to feel that way all the time? Because I saw such a change. And he would say, yes, I'm, I'm denying that or stop bringing it up. And that's, you know, it was always anger after that. So the opinion changed from, you know, I'm, I love that you challenged me to be a better man to, uh, um, you know, basically how come you're never happy? Things like that. Um, no, mm -hmm. no matter what he did, it was never enough. I'm cutting back and I'm doing that for you. Things like that. So uh, I, I don't remember at this point what the counselor had to say. Um, I know I did end up seeing him on my own for a few sessions uh, and he would state the obvious, right? Like, you know, there's only so much you could do. Uh, you can't make somebody change. You can't force someone to do what they want to do when you're with somebody who's not ready to face the facts. So, um, yeah, eventually um, it was a long, slow process because I kept holding on to hope. But uh, eventually I realized he was just not ready to accept what the real issue was. So I had to put myself first. And we're so glad that you did. I know this is an unfair question because I'm asking you to tell us what you think he was feeling. But the whole premise of this episode, the whole premise of the Dick Olympics is that you qualify for it if you're in early sobriety, because that's the period when the alcohol isn't going into your body anymore, but the behaviors are still similar to as though they the alcohol was still in your body. 
the behaviors are that way because your neurotransmitter hijacking is still taking place. You haven't, you haven't realigned your dopamine and serotonin and endorphins and you're finding no joy in life. So the question I have is when he would start to slowly reintroduce alcohol, did you get the sense that there was some big traumatic thing that happened or was it just a lack of joy in his life? And he knew he would get that euphoric feeling from alcohol. So I'm going to bring that back in slowly and see what happens. I think it was just something that had been part of his life as such a long-term thing. It was, it was just part of his identity. He was in sales, which is big with drinking. Um, I know he would, I remember he would travel a lot uh, for his job and pretty much every time I talked to him after hours, he, he was not sober. He would claim that that was part of what he, how you had to, you know, interact with your clients. He was also in a former life, uh, a chef and also a musician. So all of these, these three things, um, lots of heavy drinking involved in all of them. So I just feel like it was such a big part of his identity and that he didn't ever actually recognize it as a problem that to him going back to it wasn't a big deal. I don't feel like there was any trigger, uh, that circled him back to drinking. I do remember one unintentional time he had actually gotten sick with COVID. So there was a period of three weeks where he just was not drinking at all because he couldn't, he was too sick. And I saw those same positive changes. It wasn't a conversation I had. I didn't say, Hey, look, you're, you're so much happier now. I didn't comment on it, but I do remember we were going to shop for a Christmas tree at this farm market near our house. It was adorable. They served food. They had um, plants and Christmas trees. So we go inside to grab some lunch and he heads over to the beer garden and comes back with two beers. Now this is after he had been sick and not drinking. And I made a, ca- a comment, something like, oh, here we go. And he said, what, what's the matter? And I said, well, as soon as you introduce alcohol back into your life, the chaos in our lives returns. And he, you know, shrugs it off. Like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. We're going to be fine. And I said, do you promise do you promise that everything is going to stay as peaceful as it has been for these last three weeks? And he said, yeah, why would it change? But of course that's not the case, right? It's, I was exactly right. The second he starts reintroducing alcohol, the same, same behaviors come back again, the aggression, the anger, uh, short temper, all that it, it returned just as easily um, as it had ever been there. Boy, can I relate to that? Asking a question like, why would it change while you're holding the answer to your own question in your hand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's the beer. But I'm glad you brought in that identity piece. That is so important. And that is such an important part of this period that we're talking about when you are a qualifier for the Dick Olympics, this early sobriety period. Uh, there is the dopamine hijacking, the lack of joy, but there's also the identity piece. I'm so glad you brought that up. I know for me, I, I mean, I not only did I drink alcohol, but I wanted to be known as a drinker, which I think now I look back on it. I'm like, you want to downgrade yourself to be known as a drinker? Like, I don't, I don't understand that now, but I, I can relate to it. I want, you know, I knew a lot about IPAs and, and uh, you know, I also had a career where drinking was part of the social fabric of the career. And when you went out with clients, you would be looked upon poorly if you didn't consume. And so, Um, I think the joy leaving your life 
because of the neurotransmitter, the brain chemistry stuff is huge. But I think that identity piece is really important as well because sobriety means you don't know who you are anymore. And I know for Sherry, you would think, what, are you crazy? Like, who cares if you drink or not? Like, you didn't understand the identity the identity piece of it. Yeah. But for me, it was it was as real as anything. And so uh, you, you already are full of kind of this shame because you can't drink like everybody else. And now you're interacting with, like you said, with customers, clients. And um, it's like there's a spotlight on you because you can't drink like everybody else. And it just, it knocks the self-esteem so, so low. So the idea, I also, and I also go ahead, okay. Nikki. I was just going to say, I also feel like when you guys go through this identity part where you don't know who you are, it often at times gets pushed onto us to figure it out as well. Like to figure out who you are for you, because it's already so much as it is to go through what you've gone through. And now you're like, uh, you're fumbling because your day-to-day things aren't functioning like at home, at home life. And we're, we're, it's not, we almost have to like mother you into being a, a human being again, because you're, you're so far out of the loop, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just want to highlight something that Anne-Marie said was that, um, that he loved that you were challenging yeah. him to be a better human. But when it came to him being challenged about his, joy of drinking that identity piece that, you know, you, it's kind of like when I would get, you know, spunky or feisty with Matt and it would be like, well, you're now you're messing, you know, you're poking the bear. Don't do that. You know? And I, I love how he kind of has had chosen these careers that maybe, you know, highlight drinking and partying, you know, those were his career choices. But I think if we were really to break down all the careers, there's drinking in everything, you yeah. know, society wise, whatever. I was a chef. I didn't drink, but I was a pastry chef and I went at four in the morning. So that was a little different, but you know, I'm sure the, the night shift industry is, but I'm sure the night shift partied it up, oh, yeah. you know, as they're cleaning up, I'm sure they did. Um, you know, it just wasn't my preference to work those kind of hours, but I love how we often hear, um, alcoholics or spouses of alcoholics or partners of alcoholics that say, oh, but they're in this field. So there's a culture of drinking. They're in this field. You make what you want of your culture. And I, when you traveled with, and when you took clients out and we lived in um, the Chicago area and it was a lot of steel industry. So you would be like, oh, it's these old time steel people. Cause this was back in the early nineties. That's where I learned to drink hard alcohol without a mixer. Yeah. 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 So, uh, good for them to teach you that because you wanted to hang with the boys as being a 23 year old. You wanted to hang with these, you know, 63 year old men that probably never, never gave home. And uh, my answer to that was, uh, you smell like scotch and cigars. You're sleeping out in the living room because gross. You can't, I don't even know if you can bring your overcoat in the apartment. It was so small. There was that spunky Sherry, but you know, (laughs) I just love how, how all of these Olympians or potential Olympians like to, say, well, it's part of my career. It's part of my job. It's just with the industry. Bullshit. Yeah. No, I can see your point. I I can see your point there. And I think actually now that you bring that up, that could, that probably still speaks to the amount of recovery that I still have to do for myself because I would still accept the excuses and say, okay, well, 
that's just that's just how it is. But I remember another story. We were going through something specific and I said to him, listen, we have this barbecue to go to. I understand. Can you just just don't drink? Just there was a specific reason for it and it was an important one. And I remember he pitched a fit. Well, do you know how awkward it's going to be when he offers me a beer and I say no, carried on and on and on. And I said, well, I'm not going to be drinking. Is that going to be awkward? What are you even talking about? I just, I couldn't even connect to what he was saying. Uh, but to him, having to go to this barbecue, which, you know, this isn't even something work related, which is exactly what I'm saying. I, like I accept that excuse. Like, oh, it was just part of his industry. But this is just a neighborhood barbecue with people we know. And I said, do you really think it's going to be a big deal when he offers you a beer and says, no, I'm going to say no, thanks. And I'm going to grab a Sprite. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what happened. So uh, it was around the corner. So we had literally ri ridden our bikes there. So then on the way back, of course, I was feisty. So uh, I'm saying, oh, wow, did you did you hear the needle scratch when he offered you a beer and you said no? Did you see the whole party stop? Wasn't that crazy? Um, because I just got so sick of it. It was just the constant, you know, commentary on the sacrifices that he was making and how hard everything was for him. Constant victim mode. But I can see your point, Sherry, because yeah, that had absolutely nothing to do with what career or industry he was in. That was just a neighborhood barbecue. And it was still mm -hmm. like, oh, well, that's just what people do at barbecues. What do you mean I can't have a beer? And it was like, it was the end of the world. It was Ridiculous. Well, well, there so, is a gold medal in I care what other people think of me. And, and <laughs> you know, that is one that is up for grabs. And it's always someone, you know, that has had an alcoholic past that that wins that one. I, Be because I, you know, I was a silver bronze medalist in that for sure. But, but I, I'm not but now I, that her ex made her drink. So it looked like you were going to be the sober person, even if you were on bikes. Yeah. No, I don't think like, that ever happened for you. Remember Henry. that? Were you ever Mr. Olympian forced that... to drink so we don't look like weirdos? Yeah. That was part of no. my process for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Oh, no. Was, he was. I was really friend. tight up here in the cranial area. I was really, really <laughs> solid. There is a friend of mine who has an early memory of meeting him, though, who comments on what a drink pusher he was. And, you know, I believe that's all, you know, obviously connected. Like, so mm -hmm. he could continue to drink without looking like the only one that was doing it. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Matt was a drinker. Like, he would drink alone. And I'm like, you only drink in social settings. Who drinks alone? Well, we're together. Well, we're alone. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. So you'd be like, here, I bought some of your favorite beers. And I'm like, I'm going to sit in our family room basement and drink a beer and watch a movie that to me, that just seemed horrible. But I think this is important for our listeners. If, if, yeah, if you are one of those people though, that you look at this identity piece, which is such an important part of this conversation and you say, I just don't get it. Why do you care that you are going to be, you know, why would you be embarrassed at the barbecue? Cause you drink Sprite instead of beer. If you don't get it, uh, that's because you are you have better self-esteem than your drinking partner does, and you have more confidence and you're less insecure. And so if you are with somebody who has that thing where, you know, Bob down the street can't know I don't drink anymore, um, then that that's an indication of super low self-esteem and low self-esteem that I suffered from. So I'm not just throwing stones here. Uh, that was well, part of me for sure. I had the opposite because I feel like I was the pusher on him when we were in social settings because I wanted him to be social. 
Um, and the alcohol brought that out of him. Um, I would have never uh, assumed or imagined that he had an issue or a problem. Um, and I felt guilty for a long time for that. Well, yeah. Um, but you didn't know what you were dealing with at the time. You certainly, after you knew he was addicted to alcohol, you certainly weren't pushing at that point. And you were supportive through early sobriety of his sobriety. Uh, right. But yeah. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's, that's a fair comment. When we, when we don't know what we don't know, Mm -hmm. uh, we all do kind of crazy kinds of things like that. Yeah. And I've heard stories of like, you know, they come out of their shell. They're less introverted. It was more fun, you know, like, so yeah. When you have those introverts, that's kind of fun. God forbid we work through that on a natural way and become emotionally more mature. Mm-hmm. Uh, when there's this toxin that we can just pour down our throats and it livens us up. Yeah. Secure for everything. Can you hear the sarcasm? Nikki, I have a question for you. Um, we've been talking about, uh, you know, when we're in early sobriety, uh, there is blame to go around for the relationship troubles. Um, Emery talked about her counselor saying, yeah, uh, if he does 30 days of sobriety and the marriage is still on the verge of divorce, then I will be the first to say that Amory is batshit crazy. Did you ever, during Josh's early sobriety, did you ever take the blame for the relationship turmoil? Did, did he ever say, you know, um, this is on you. It's, it's not, you know, it's not me. It's not the alcohol. This is on you. Was that part of what you had to deal with? Um, in early sobriety, it turned into, well, I'm sober now. So, you know, now, now I felt the pressure of it being on me to fix it because, well, he was fixing himself. So I felt that now it was my turn to have to fix whatever needed to be fixed. And it's almost like, I was watching him get better and be better when I couldn't even look at him yet. Um, I couldn't make eye contact with him and he was sitting there going, well, it's your fault why we're irritable. Um, I'm sober. Like it, it, the cockiness came out. The it, it was like he wanted, and then I would question myself and go, why can't I let it go? Why can't I go back to the beginning how it was with all the love and you know we had a rough relationship but there was still love and like I put all that pressure on me because I'm going well he's not drinking anymore so it has to be something I'm doing that I'm not able to go back there so if I'm not able to then like he's not going to be able to um but then you enter, you know, the stuff you have to recover from, the lies, the trust, the trauma, the alcohol, like years of disappointment. Um, it's not easy to just flip that switch and go back to how they want us to be when they're sober now. Um, it's, it's, they think it's that easy because they remember us being the same pretty much throughout their entire journey. <laughs> Um, but he would get super jealous early on as well when I would detach and go out with friends or whatnot. And I wasn't giving him the attention he felt he deserved now, um, that he was sober. 
Um, so again, that it all just felt like pressure for me to make those changes, even though I didn't know how, because yeah, it really it, wasn't up to me. <laughs> that's super interesting. It's so important for the loved ones, for the spouses to back to the listener question, to honor what you've been through and to recognize that your recovery is a real thing too. And it's going to take some time. And we, as the drinkers have to have respect for that and give you space for that. Uh, because just because we stop committing crimes doesn't mean that the previous crimes are completely forgiven. There's a process that has to be worked through um, to get to get back to a a place where um, the relationship can grow and thrive. Um, well, I took and, a quote. I took a quote out of my writing um, from two years ago, almost three years ago, and I I said, "He can take the knife out of my chest, but it won't stop the bleed." Um, and that to me summed up everything in early sobriety, you know, like I'm still hurting, even though he's took out the main problem by being sober. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a, that's a great line. I love it. I'll probably adopt it and use it as my own and forget to give you attribution going forward. So just, just feel, feel forewarned. He's still trying I'm to compete at that. in the Dick Olympics. Yeah. So there are some things, areas where I think is just a holdover or that's truly who you are. Yeah. You get that from your father. I can tell Personality you. Personality trait. Yeah. Yeah. Come by it naturally. I'm a natural in the Dick Olympics. That's what we've always thought. So I was just going to say, I think one of the, the best things when you have been able to move forward and each of you are working. And I think Anne Marie, your story is different. It did not end like this. I think Nikki and Josh and Matt and I, and there are other representatives where we have gotten over a hump and are working for towards a better relationship. And I just want to say, I love that now, like Matt and I have the ability to like acknowledge the past behaviors that were traumatic and even laugh about them and laugh them off. Because I think that a lot of programs do help the alcoholic understand that there is a humility side, that a piece that has to come into that and that alcohol did take over your life. But also I think that blaming the alcohol is not shifting the blame, it's blaming the alcohol and understanding that it changes both of you. And that we can laugh about some of those silly things now, like, you know, you making me drink because we were at a party and you wanted to look like you were going to be the designated driver, you know, but then you, yeah. Yeah. Drink the next day or something. Cause you just couldn't have handled the pressure. Well, speaking of funny stories that we can all laugh about, Amory, you've got some gems. And I do. It, you know, you, you have to go the extra mile to win the gold medal in the Dick Olympics. And I think, uh, I think we need to hear a couple of them. Can you tell the leaf blower story, Emery? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Uh, so this doesn't really even involve early sobriety. It's just the behavior as things evolved in the marriage. And I do feel a lot of this is attributed to him realizing that I am now done. I'm leaving. I had gotten the attorney and I, I feel that his pride would have never let him admit that there were comments like the divorce that you wanted, the attorney that you got, things like that. So I could tell that he was bitter, but he would never say, this isn't what I want. Let's try to fix it. 
So as he realized that I am now off living my own life, regardless of what he's doing, and I am moving forward with the divorce process, his anger, his own bitterness, and his own behavior um, just gets worse. So I was out walking the dogs one morning. I come back, and uh, it was you know fairly early, and I hear the leaf blower, which is not uncommon. Uh, he would always use it out in the morning in the patio, um, and that's where he was initially. Um, but then I had walked to another part of the house, I come back and I still hear the leaf blower. I had gone upstairs um, and in the master bedroom on the farther end was a door with a balcony. Uh, so I come upstairs and the door with the balcony is open, but he is standing at the top of the stairs at the entrance to the bedroom with the leaf blower, just having at it, just you know, sweeping the room with the leaf blower that he was just using in the patio. Um, I can see my college graduation tassel on the floor swirling around with some dust and dog hair. So um, these are those moments where I end up looking like the crazy person. So he's the one in the bedroom with the leaf blower, but I'm the one who snaps because I mean, this is when we had already been estranged and he had relocated himself to the bedroom downstairs. So this is, quote unquote, his house. I sold my house when we got married. I moved into his. I was, there was probably not a day that had gone by that I was not reminded that it was his house. So he was bitter that I was in the master bedroom suite and he was the one downstairs, even though he was the one that left. So uh, that's a big part of it. It was all about power and control, no matter what. Um, everything he did pointed back to that power and control. And that was just, that was part of it. I would love to have witnessed your reaction if he used a leaf blower in your bedroom and you came away looking like that you must have gone off the deep end. I say justifiably I so. Yeah, yeah I snapped. Leaf blower in the bedroom. <laughs> that's, I mean, I mean, that's I just this. on top of so many other things he did. Let's see, wasn't there a tracker well at one? Well, wasn't I've, there a tracker at one point? A GPS yeah. tracker. Yeah. Yes. And so audio you, recording device in my vehicle. Uh, I mean, there's just, there's so many things. The police got involved and I just, I didn't tell him that I knew about that for the longest time. I allowed him to track me because I wasn't doing anything wrong. Right. Um, just, just completely irrational behavior um, as things went along. That controlling. Control um, and power. Yeah. And uh, a big part of this, if there's anybody listening who is in the same position, that I am now in where you've left or you're thinking about leaving and, and you feel stuck. Like just, I think a big part of it for me was expecting that closure, that apology, that acknowledgement from the alcoholic spouse. And I think one of the things that has brought me the biggest amount of peace is accepting that that's never going to happen and accepting that this was never my fault in the first place. Um, that did really keep me stuck, you know, waiting for him to come in and, and save us in the end. Like, no, he's going to wake up. He's not going to let me leave. And uh, I waited and waited. Uh, and then I realized that this isn't I, – I can't keep waiting for him to take action. Um, he's still drinking, and I need to worry about myself. There's no indication on his part that 
he plans on getting better or plans on stopping and I have to take control of my own life again. So it was, I can say with all honesty, one of the hardest things I ever had to do. When we first met, if you told me that he hung the moon, I would have believed you. I adored this man. I still have a lot of sadness. It's fresh uh, for me, but uh, closure is not something that I'll ever get. Um, I have to find that for myself. Oh, so uh, such an important point. One of the things that I recall from our relationship and our friendship with you is that the, and this is so common, the behavior deteriorated in a gradual way such that I think when you, the first time you shared the leaf blower story with us, you were like, oh, he stepped up a notch, leaf blower in the bedroom. And your listening audience was like, what? Like we've heard all these alcoholic stories that I've never heard that. Like that is cray cray. And, um, I think you just kind of accepted it as the next stage in, in the development of the deteriorating relationship. Is that the fair? Things Did you, you normalize. Realize? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The things, the behavior that you just start to normalize until you're talking to somebody else and they're looking at you like, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of that and probably examples that I had forgotten. I mean, because there's just, there's so many, there's so many stories. Um, but yeah, there, you just, you get to a point where you're just always waiting for the next thing. And, um, yeah, that one, the leaf blower did really send me over the edge, um, because it, there had been so much and there's so, so much that I didn't react to, right. Just for the sake of keeping the peace, because, you're just always trying to avoid the reaction, trying to avoid the trigger, trying to not get screamed at, trying to stay out of the line of fire. And um, I just, I bit my tongue so many times and just accepted it. And um, eventually you get to the point where you can't accept it anymore. Everything builds up. And that day with the leaf blower, I just, I, I feel like I screamed until there was no air left in my lungs about things that had happened for the last six months that I haven't hadn't commented on just, I probably sounded like a banshee to the neighbors. Um, not my finest moment, but, um, there was a leaf blower in my bedroom. So <laughs> there was a leaf blower in your bedroom. You talk about not being sure what's next. I think once this podcast airs, one of the things that might be next for you is a call from a screenwriter who wants to work on the <laughs> sequel to war of the roses, because I think you've got, <laughs> You've got all the makings of a great film that I would love to to go and see. Don't mean to make yeah. light of it, but no, uh, I yeah, understand. I mean, okay, tell us. And just another, just another comment. I'm sorry. It's just Sherry had said before, or maybe Nikki, about how the disease or the alcoholism changes you both, and it's so true because there are so many behaviors of my own. Like I could point to his behavior deteriorating, but mine deteriorated just as badly. I mean, there were times where I looked at myself going, what, who was that? What are you doing? Who are you? Um, and those were the moments when I realized I, I, there was a real need for me to, to take action and make some change in a big way because I couldn't continue on that way. I, uh, I fully admit that in the past I was somebody who would say like, Oh, that person's claiming they had a panic attack. Nah, that's just all in their head until I was in this relationship. And then I had three, I believe, 
Um, and I realized that um, they're out of they're out of your control uh, for the most part. And it's just your central nervous system reacting to trauma that you're going through. And um, my behaviors in response to the recognition that like this is now for, uh, you know, affecting me medically and I'm behaving like a lunatic. Um, you know, it was really, it, it was less his behavior and more my reaction to it that what woke me up to really making the changes and the decisions that led me to leaving because I didn't like who I was. Well, you, you made the decisions to save yourself and uh, you can't depend on somebody else to do that for you. You can't, I mean, th you, this is a great example of how detachment works. There are cases where detachment snaps the drinker out of it. That's what happened for me. It was, I was just too fearful I couldn't imagine living without my wife and kids. I was weak. I, I didn't think I would survive that. And so it was from a place of weakness that detachment worked for me. And I found the strength to find sobriety, but there's a, another large percentage of the people out there for whom the drinkers out there, for whom the detachment just drives them further into their resolve to remain a drinker. And there's nothing you can do about it, but you still have to detach. You still have to make the decisions you did for yourself. So detachment isn't a weapon or a tool that you're using to get the drinker sober. Detachment is a survival mechanism so that you can continue your life and prosper. And the effect that it has on the drinker, it's, it's going to go one of two ways and you can't predict it. You can't control it. You just got to detach and take care of yourself and then see what happens. So you can only take so much. And when you called me from the closet in your house, because you were unable to know if you were being recorded in your own home, um, I saw the defeat in your eyes. And I'm just, I just want to put it out there that I'm, I know you made a very difficult decision, but I'm proud that you've chosen yourself. And you're choosing to heal yourself. It's uh, it's a long, it's a long road ahead for me. Um, but yeah, uh, I appreciate the acknowledgement of that. Um, I feel 100% like a different person than I was even a year ago, and I know it's only going to get better from there. Now that I am separated from the chaos. Well, we'll certainly be here to support you. We're going to have to have you back on another time. Before the podcast started, we were kind of comparing notes a little bit. And Sherry said she wanted to make sure you told the pussy cake story, which you <laughs> did that too. That was Nikki who said the pussy cake. Oh, was that I Nikki? Said, yes. Sorry, Nikki. But I don't remember what it's called either. So You're an East Coaster, Amory. It's called. I was going to say. It might only be a tri-state area thing. I don't know, because based on the responses um, in the group when I shared this story, nobody nobody knew what Cookie Puss was. So my ex, I guess, nostalgia for him around his birthday was this certain Carvel cake, and it was a character called Cookie Puss. So even though we were already estranged, I believe this was maybe very early 2023. So we might be coming up on a one year anniversary of this. So um, even though we were already estranged, I still, 
I can say I still have love for him, but I still definitely loved him deeply then. I wanted to make his birthday special. He was sick. So I had gone to the local Carvel and I had gotten him this cookie puss cake. And I tried to make his birthday special. And I remember, you know, he opened his gifts and he said, oh, thank you. You didn't have to do that. And I think I had said to him at the end of his gift opening, uh, probably four times in a row, telling him I loved him and he wouldn't answer me. So um, I think eventually he said it back, but it was probably just to get me to stop. Anyway, I was obviously in a very unhealthy place. So uh, it was a sizable cake, not one that you eat in one sitting. It was ice cream cake. So it had wound up in our garage freezer. And above the garage was a loft where he would play drums and guitar. And I had gone up there one night after the fact to discuss something. And as usual, any sort of normal conversation devolved into chaos. He was probably cold and dismissive as usual, or telling me I'm crazy, overreacting, just pick one. Um, and I had just had enough. I was fed up, you know, feeling foolish, you know, like I had tried to make his birthday special. I still had hope. And it's just, just feels like a constant betrayal, right? Um, so I reacted. And I remember I went downstairs. I grabbed the cake out of the freezer. I brought it up to the loft where he was. I threw it on the ground. And I just continually jumped up and down and, like, stomped on it. Um, because in my mind, I was like, you know what? You just – you don't even deserve the cake. Why did I do this nice thing for you when you're still so awful? Like, why do I keep giving and giving and giving? Um, when you're just so terrible to me. And um, I remember going into, there's a chat group um, of some of us from the Echoes and I just, from the Echoes of Recovery group, a chat group on Facebook. And I went into that group and I was like, oh my God, guys, like I just completely lost it. And somebody, it might've been Jane, was just like, go outside and breathe. Um, so the aforementioned balcony with the leaf blower, it was freezing out. And I remember I was just standing out on this balcony in the cold, just trying to like gather myself after realizing that I just um, stomped an ice cream cake as a grown woman. Uh, <laughs> so uh, there was a lot of chaos and I could, you know, it's easy to point the finger at myself and say, see, that was me. He was totally calm in that, you know, in that moment, in that interaction. Um, but it's after but it years was... of my, my emotions and my feelings being dismissed. Um, yeah. It's just ignored. how alcohol changes you, not just the alcoholic. I love that yeah. story. You're probably cold on the balcony because you had ice cream squeezing between your toes. That doesn't. <laughs> yeah. that doesn't oh no, help. I had shoes on. It was it was cold and rainy. It was definitely January. So, uh, I th yeah, I think but, in the, uh, the order night. of the order of stories in War of the Roses too. I think that goes after the leaf blower. I think. That's I, kind I don't of, know if I saw that. No, that was before. To, I'm gonna have to. You think that would that, that would be before? before. Uh, well, I I think it's only appropriate that on an podcast episode titled the dick olympics that we talk about the pussy cake episode uh, <laughs> that's not so, it. oh my god or, i'm sorry cookie <laughs> puss. You, the way you cookie say it Emory, it just rolls off your tongue as though that's like somehow much better like for there's those of also us fudge, fudgy the whale carvel has a fudgy the whale cake that's a thing too cookie puss it's just a character all right at, at st patrick's day it's cookie opus <laughs> 
cookie opus. Oh, of course. I want to find a cookie opus. I wonder, I'm going to be immediately searching Carvel. I love an ice cream cake. We're going to have cookie opus. That sounds great. Well, I want to close this episode, first of all, by thanking you both for being on and being so candid. And we just love you so much. But I also want to close the episode by talking directly to my fellow Olympians, my fellow uh Olympians, gold, uh, Dick Olympics competitors. The, I, I think it's so important for us to honor the trauma of the loved ones, to honor the trauma of our spouses, and just to thank God that they hung in there with us. If they have hung in there with us through the active addiction portion, um, find our own support for recovery and not lean super hard on these people that we've traumatized and to find our way back to representing as some some version of the person that our spouse is married to begin with. And I think that is a message that is lost on a lot of people in early sobriety because of all the pain and challenges of getting sober. The idea of uh, having any respect or honor for the person that we've traumatized, it's just, it's just too much. It's too much to wrap our arms around. But that would be my message to my fellow Olympians, Nikki, Amory, thank you so much for joining us. First podcast recording me. of the new year. Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, I know that the relationship status diverged and went in different directions for the two of you, but I know that you both are stronger and healthier people. Uh, we've been so blessed to watch you both grow over these last couple of years. And we know that good things are ahead for both of you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.